Job 16, we'll read verses 1 and 2. When I get my throat in this condition, it normally takes 10 to 15 days for me to come out. My problem is, in order to conserve my voice, I have to prepare messages that are more like studies and will keep my voice in a monotone. So that's difficult to do for two weeks at a time. So this morning, you get a devotional out of Job, so that way I can come back and preach tonight another devotional until my voice gets better. And we'll be looking at Job chapter 16. We'll start in verse 1. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are ye all. Job looks at his three friends, men who've come to help him in his calamity, and says, after hearing them speak, miserable comforters are ye all. Now, I know we've been in a spot where we've looked at those around us that have sought to comfort us in a time of tragedy. Sometimes when you're in this situation and you find yourself suffering, hurting, you uh, don't even know if you want to be comforted. So it doesn't matter who comes, you're going to look at them as a miserable comforter. But Job, having heard what they had to say, finally responds, and his response is not one of joy with those that are sitting here with him, but rather one of frustration. And he says, miserable, miserable comforters are ye all. Go with me to Job chapter 1. Let's look at his situation, his calamity for just a moment. Now here's part of Job's frustration. Verse 1 says, There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. That man was perfect and upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. Now I don't know of any higher words of recommendation in all the Bible than these right here found speaking of Job. A man that was perfect and upright. Now... If you're suffering for a sin, if you're suffering the consequence of an action, if you're suffering an injustice, that's one thing. But when you are doing right and God himself says, here's a man that is perfect and upright, that fears me and issues evil, and suddenly you lose everything, every earthly possession that you had acquired in life. The Sabians came, rustled his cattle and his, his oxen and his donkeys, 500 of each. Fire fell from heaven, burned up all of his sheep. 7,000 sheep in a single fire died. The Chaldeans came and stole his camels. 3,000. But the worst part was that tornado that blew through and hit the house that his children were in, and all 10 of them died. Can you imagine you're there at the funeral and you have 10 caskets, and each one lays one of your children. That's beyond what we can imagine when we talk about a bad day. This was something that defies description. We certainly can't imagine being in this circumstance. And look what happens in chapter 2, verse 11. When Job and his three friends, when they hear the evil that was come upon him, the Bible says they came, every one from his own place. We see three men, Eliaphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. Now, this was a 
good thing to do. You have to understand in this condition, his own wife couldn't comfort him because she had suffered the same tragedy, the same loss. So when he lost his health and he's sitting there with boils that covered from his head to the bottom of his feet, she looked over and said, Job, it's time just to curse God and die. Now, amazingly, Job maintained his faith and Job maintained his integrity through this trial. But he's sitting there in great affliction. And let me just say this. We're surrounded by people that are suffering tragedy and great affliction. We just had this storm hit the Philippines and we support missionaries over there. And Brother Travis notified us that the roof on their church has been damaged and there may be as many as eight to 10,000 people that have lost their lives. And those that, that's not even speaking of the damage that was done uh, to their possessions, their houses, their vehicles, everything they've ever acquired in life. But we don't have to go to the Philippines to see people suffering affliction. Right here in our own church, people are suffering with cancer and sickness and pain and heartache and children that have gone astray and broken marriages and you find people everywhere who are suffering heartache. Now, I know most of us desire to be a comforter. We just don't know how. You ever found yourself in a place where you, you knew you should go, you knew you should be there, you knew you should be a help on some level, but you are afraid to go? You don't have the words. I, as a pastor, often find myself in the hospital and you're... You're sitting with someone, you're visiting with someone who is suffering on a level that I've never experienced. And I remember making hospital visits, but until we had a daughter that had three surgeries, until we'd experienced that kind of emotional trauma, until you go and and sit there night after night and wonder, is this person going to make it through? You can't understand and you can't properly respond. And most of the time, I don't even try because I know words are inadequate in this situation, but people need comfort. And they went, I believe they went with the right intentions. As a matter of fact, the Bible says they went to mourn with him and to comfort him. Now, this was a good start. Let me ask you this. Why is it if they went in this frame of mind, they banded together, they had the right purpose, and they sit down to grieve and mourn with him, just a few chapters later, a few comments later, he's looking at them and saying, Miserable, miserable comforters are ye all. Because they made the mistake of opening their mouths. Now look at the start, verse 11, when the three friends heard of this evil that was come upon him, they came, they did the right thing, they showed up at his door, they didn't wait for an invitation. You know one of the worst mistakes we make when people are hurting is we sit back and and think we need to go by invitation only. People in that condition are not going to extend an invitation. It's amazing a person can have 50 friends, but when he goes through the crisis, only one or two show up. Those are the times we have to step out, and they did just that. Look what it says. They made an appointment together. That's a good idea. So the three of them call each other. Back then on their ancient cell phones, you know, the kind that had a cup and a cord. They made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. So their motives were right. They were headed the right direction. 
They lifted up their eyes afar off. They knew him not. Now, when you see someone suffering a tragedy, their physical appearance changes. The best thing you can do is not to make a comment about that. No one looks beautiful when they're suffering a tragedy. No one looks gorgeous in a hospital. How many times I've been to the hospital, people said, oh, Pastor, please. I didn't expect you to get up at 4 o'clock and do your hair so I could come in and drink a coffee with you. But they noticed his physical condition was horrific. They lifted up their voices and wept. And this is a Bible principle. You know we're commanded to weep with them that weep, rejoice with them that rejoice in putting ourselves in their shoes more than sympathizing, empathizing with them over their tragedy. They were doing that. They ran everyone as mantle, sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. They were going through rituals. And let me just say this. There's nothing wrong with a ritual unless it's anti-biblical. But when there's someone suffering a tragedy, folks, flowers are always a good thing to do. A meal an email, a word, a phone call, anything to offer some level of comfort. Verse 13, so they sat down with him upon the ground seven days, seven nights. None spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was great. Now, this, (coughs) what they did at the very start, was perfectly done. If they would have left it right there, Job would not have said, miserable comforters are ye all. Now, why did they find themselves in this category? Because they opened their mouths. Now, here's how a person feels when he's suffering tragedy. Go with me back to chapter 16, and let's see Job's words. What does he say about himself? Matter of fact, in chapters 5, 6, and 7, you actually see Job speaking of his desire to die to just get the suffering over with. But here's here's what Job says about his present condition. He feels like the whole world is against him, not just the unsaved, not just Satan, but God himself. He says in verse 8, Thou hast filled me with wrinkles, which is a witness against me. My leanness rising up in me beareth witness to my faith. He teareth me in his wrath who hateth me. He gnasheth upon me with his teeth. Mine enemy sharpeneth his eyes upon me. They have gaped upon me with their mouth. They have smit me upon the cheek reproachfully. They have gathered themselves together against me. God hath delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, but he hath broken me asunder. He hath also taken me by my neck, shaken me to pieces. How many ever felt like that? Now, you didn't know who to blame. Sometimes we blame God for allowing it to happen. Sometimes we blame those around us. But we feel like someone's just life has grabbed us by the neck and just shaken us to pieces. Now, it's at these moments that we tend to talk crazy. How many of you went through a crisis and you found yourself saying things you'd normally never say? Thinking things you'd normally never think? And when you find someone going through a crisis, you can expect them to talk crazy. And really at that moment, they don't need someone to fix them. They'll get through it. They'll make it through. 
They're saying things that they're feeling at the moment and they'll be forever regretful that they even uttered those words. But meanwhile, they don't need a third and fourth and fifth preacher at their bedside. They need a comforter. So in the midst of this, when Job was at his lowest point, when he's spewing his frustration, they're listening, and then we see their response. And the first thing out of their mouths, go back with me to chapter 4, because when they came and they saw his condition, they do what many of us do. They begin to make suppositions. Why is Job suffering? Then verse 1 says, Then Eliphaz, the Timonite, answered and said, If we essay to commune with thee, wilt thou be grieved? But who can withhold himself from speaking? Behold, thou hast instructed many. Thou hast strengthened the weak hands. Thy words have upholding him that was falling. Thou hast strengthened the feeble knees. Now, if he would have stopped here, this would have been great. You know what? When someone's suffering, it's a good time to praise, exhort, maybe even flatter. And here's what he does. He starts by saying, Job, you've been a help and a comfort and a strength to so many people around you. But instead of stopping and leaving it there, he says in verse 5, But now it has come upon thee, and thou feignest. It toucheth thee, and thou art troubled. Yes, he already knows this. Why throw it in his face? He knows his condition. He knows where he's at. Verse 6, is not this thy fear, thy confidence, thy hope in the uprightness of thy ways? Remember, now he begins to defend God by attacking Job. And let me just say this. God doesn't need anyone to defend him. You know what we do in life when someone is suffering? We go out of our way to defend God. God's way is perfect. They know that if they're Christians. Well, if you hadn't done that, if you hadn't, this is not a time to defend God or put men in their place. Life is doing that. So you're better off giving them a hug, bringing them a coffee, offering them a word of encouragement. And that's how these three started but they begin to look at Job and say, this must be the result of sin. Now, you have to understand something. These men did not have God's holy word. They didn't have a Bible. They didn't have a church. They didn't even have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They didn't have a pastor that could go and make this visit for them. They couldn't go and read a psalm to Job in his distress because the book of Psalms had not been written. So they were doing what they knew to do. And they sat down and said, if you're suffering evil, you must be an evildoer. Verse 7, remember, I pray thee, whoever perished being innocent, Mr. Job, if you're so innocent, why are you suffering the wrath of God? Or where were the righteous cut off? Don't try to sound spiritual at someone's bedside. Read them a song. Don't offer your wisdom. I tell everyone that I visit in the hospital. I say, would you do me a favor? When people come to visit you, would you do me a favor and not be offended by what they say? People mean well. They just don't speak well. They have good intentions. It's just the way it comes out is rarely a blessing. Let flowers speak for you. Buy a stuffed animal. 
What do I say when I give it to them? Just hand it off. Be a quarterback. You don't need to do anything else. You don't have to say a word. But as soon as they open their mouth, they begin to defend God, attack Job, look for a cause, give an explanation, and that is human tendency. I want to find the root problem, identify it, and fix it for you, Job. Verse 8, even as I have seen, now he's trying to sound spiritual, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness, Job, they reap the same. Now, they were off track, obviously so. Go with me to Job chapter 42. Because look what God says about them when he reverses Job's circumstance. Verse 7. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord sent Eliphaz, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right as my servant Job hath. Matter of fact, who was more righteous, Job or these three men? Who is it that the Bible refers to as being perfect and upright and a man that eschewed evil? It was the man that was suffering the calamity. And God says, when you guys went in as friends and opened your mouth, you made some horrendous statements that hurt my servant. Verse 8, therefore take you now seven bullocks, seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you. For him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly. Was God happy with what they had done? Not at all. Had they done it in good intentions? How many of us have ever had good intentions and done the wrong thing? They went with good intentions, sat with him to comfort him. But when they began to open their mouths and preach, he said, miserable, miserable comforters. And God said, that was not only folly, it was sin. And I want you to go offer a sacrifice for your sin. I'm going to have Job pray for you. Lest I deal with you after your falling. And that you have not spoken to me the thing which is right like my servant Job. So life has. Build that. So far they went. They did according as the Lord commanded them. Also the Lord accepted Job. What's the problem with comforters? When does a comforter become miserable? The problem with most comforters, putting ourselves in this category, we often lack wisdom. It's God that giveth wisdom, and before you ever seek to comfort someone, you ought to pray that God gives you special wisdom. But they lack wisdom. Go with me to chapter 8. Look at a statement made. Very cruel and heartless statement, yet when it was said by Bildad, he thought he was wise. Look what it says in chapter 8, verse 4. If thy children have sinned against him, against God, and he have cast them away for their transgression, do you understand what's going on? Job has lost ten children. Bildad comes to comfort him and says... You know why you had to prepare ten caskets? Because of their sin. 
It's called a very unwise, indiscreet, pathetic moment for a man to call himself a friend and a counselor and then try to make a determination that's not even his to make. And folks, you need to be careful because when people are suffering heartache, you want to think in your mind and come, with, come up with really the root problem and I know why you're suffering and I know the solution and I know how you could get better and I know a remedy. That's not your job. That's not the part of being a comforter. Just simply give them a gift and a hug and a word of comfort and leave it at that. God is doing a work, only a work that he can do. You don't know the reason. You don't know the cause. You don't even know the purpose. And all you can do is interfere by making those kind of statements, usually judgmental statements. When someone is grieving, when someone is at their lowest point, when someone is suffering, whether or not it's that, that is the consequence of their sin, that's a time to let the Holy Spirit do his work. That's a time to allow God to find his purpose in their lives. But we as comforters are not there to straighten out what they may have messed up or what they are suffering. He makes a very unwise statement here that hurts Job. Let me just say this. You know what helps us become good comforters in life is experience. Don't ever sit with someone who's suffering and say, I know how you feel. They just lost a child. You have never lost a child. Very unwise statement to say, I know how you feel. You don't know how they feel. Very cautious about using that statement. I think God and I have done a lot of work in hospitals. That's tough for a man to do with the gift of prophecy who doesn't have the gift of mercy. And I look back now in my early ministry with great shame. Because we started both in Argentina and in Mexico, especially with many doctors and nurses in the church. And I would spend days, literally every week, up at the hospital with those that were sick and dying. And I look back and think now how much more I could have done to be a comforter. And how many of those thought in my presence, miserable comforter are ye, pastor? But I didn't have experience. Now that I've spent days up at the hospital, now that I have a child that's had several surgeries, now that I've experienced the pain of life and I've watched people die of cancer and I sat by my own dad's bedside when his kidneys were failing and he slowly and painfully passed away as a result. Now it's much easier to walk in and simply show love and compassion and mercy and exhort and pray and leave, and the worst thing you can do, go to someone who's suffering tragedy, and through a lack of wisdom and inexperience, try to offer some word of advice or counsel, bad move. Counterproductive, and will actually take that person to a lower depth of despair instead of helping him. Now, Go with me to chapter 42 for just a minute. I want to say three or four things quickly about being a good comforter. 
Psalms 42, look what happens, verse 10. The Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. So the Lord turns the tide and begins to bless Job. Look at the first word of verse 11. Then. So after this tragedy is over and God once again has opened the windows of heaven and is blessing him on many different levels. Once again, he has children being born into his family. Once again, God is helping him recover his wealth. Then came there unto him all his brethren and all his sisters. Then they that had been his acquaintances before did eat bread with him in his house. Then they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Then every man also gave him a piece of money. Then every one an earring of gold. Do you see the problem? Do you know when the comforter showed up? When the tide had turned. You know how to be a good comforter? Just be there when the person is suffering. Just be there. I remember when Ashley had her last surgery. We're sitting getting ready to go in to the hospital, and they had her in preparation. And I walked out, and there in the lobby were our friends, Tim and Ms. Fuller, driven all the way from Florida, 13 hours, just to show up and sit with us for a few hours. He couldn't even spend the night. Had duties, obligations, a conference to preach, he drove 13 hours to sit with us for two or three hours, turn around and drive 13 hours home. He came, hugged our necks, said, Preacher, pretend we're not even here. We just want to sit in the lobby. You don't need to spend five minutes with us. We just want to pray with you and let you know we love you. That's someone that is a comfort, not because the words of wisdom that were spoken, but simply because they had a heart to be there in our time of suffering. You know what people like? Just to know that someone is there. If you bring them soup in their moment of tragedy, it doesn't even have to be the right flavor. It doesn't matter if it's chicken noodle or a pumpkin bisque. They don't care about the taste. When you're sick, you're not concerned about what you're eating. They might not even eat it. I take food to people in the hospital that I know they're not going to eat. I sneak it by. I've taken lemon meringue pie to Miss Dorothy, knowing she was only going to have the strength and the appetite to eat one bite. But I just want Dorothy to know that her pastor loves her. I don't care if she can eat that steak when I bring it by. I don't care if we go uh, to a restaurant and she can't handle more than two spoons. That doesn't matter to me. What matters is that she knows she has someone that's willing to sit with her in her moment of crisis. Oh, how I've looked back and regretted the times that people were sick and hurting, and I didn't know what to do, so I did very little at all. You know, when you have the gift of prophecy, you're fearful. You're fearful to show up when people are hurting, thinking, I don't want to slip but the older you get, the less the temptation. 
And the more you see God begins to produce mercy in your life, and all you want to do is help that person make it through the tragedy. And these people all considered themselves comforters because when the tragedy was over and the suffering had finished, now they show up with gifts and sit around and comfort. Can you imagine what was going through Job's mind? Where were you when we had a funeral for 10 of those kids? Where were you when I was scraping my boils? Where were you when I had no money in my pocket, no food on my table? Where were you when I needed a phone call, a letter, a handshake, a hug? But now that God's turned the tide, suddenly everyone's banging down my door. Now here's what you don't want to do if you're suffering. Don't get mad at people because you are one. Don't get mad at a miserable comforter because you've been one. This isn't for you to look back this morning and point the finger at someone that was a miserable comforter, but rather to look at your life and say, I'm going to be faced with the opportunity of adversity. And when I have the opportunity to bless or to help or to exhort or to comfort someone that is suffering through a crisis or a tragedy, I want to make sure that I'm there, not because I have a million dollars, not because I have a lot of time, not because I have wisdom to share, but simply because I want them to know I can be there. And when those men showed up originally at Job's doorstep, they were a blessing. Simply sitting there, putting dust and ashes on themselves. In silence. Now you want to know what you should do in order to be a good comforter? Just show up. Just be there. And let me just say this. Thank you those of you that went to the hospital and just sat with us. I, this last time, I don't remember how long we were there, eight or ten days. Those of you that just sat there, those of you that brought meals, those of you that brought gifts. This church is growing in wisdom and discretion. Not a single person came to quote a verse. You know, we like to use cliches. Romans 8.28 should never be quoted at a hospital. I remember the first surgery that Ashley had. She's six months old. We don't even know if she's going to survive. We had a young church, uh, just a few young Christians, and several came up. I mean, they still had the smell of smoke on their breath when they came up to the hospital you know you have someone smoking a cigarette say preacher you know all things work together for the good to them that love God I hope you love God not a good moment quote a verse I didn't feel really appreciative or comforted by those verses they were quoting you know what simple hug will do at that moment in crisis and when they came and they simply sat with him for seven days, they were beautiful comforters. How many of you ever been in a hospital and actually wanted someone talking anyways? Have you been there? That's not a time to talk. They're probably looking at you saying, hey, can you just shut it down? I'm going to send you to get me something to eat, although I can't eat just to get you to... Refrain from talking to me for the next hour. You need to emphasize, look, look what it says in Job chapter 
16. Most people don't know how to empathize. Here's how Job put it, Job 16.4. I also could speak as ye do. Now he's using this to say, listen, it'd be easy for us to change places. And I could pick up the microphone and be the preacher. But that's not what I need. Verse 4, I also could speak as ye do. If your soul were in my soul's stead, I could heap up words against you. Now you know what you need to do to be a good comforter? Put yourself in their place. He said, if your soul were in my soul's stead. This is what it means when God says in Romans that to weep with them that weep and rejoice with them that rejoice. Listen, you should be as happy with that person as if it were your new car that you just bought or your house that you just purchased or a lottery ticket that you just, you better not be playing the lottery. When you empathize with someone you feel like you've been in that car accident you just lost your child it'll help you respond properly when you sit back and say can I imagine losing my firstborn can I imagine having a doctor tell me that news can I imagine having suffered that tragedy Folks, in this room this morning, we have people that just gone through surgery, people that are dealing with cancer. Some have had their house flooded. Uh, some have lost jobs. Listen, there's hardly a person in this room on some level that's not suffering at this very moment. I could go one at a time. Whether it's, it's telling you that these men, Brother Sutton's not going to talk about his health. Brother Tony Riley talks about his health. Brother Tucker's not going to tell you about his health. Brother Sergio's not going to tell you about his health. But here are four men right here, front row, who are constantly dealing with physical ailments and very severe life-threatening ones in the case of Brother Tucker and Brother Tony. What you want to do before you ever make a statement is put yourself... In their shoes. Otherwise, when you speak, it may not be with words of wisdom, but rather cutting knives that hurt rather than heal. So they come. Now let me just say this. Go to Job chapter 32. We're going to detour here for just a minute just so I don't let you out too early. Job 32, what you don't want to do is take that time to try to fix a problem. Let me ask you this. Although the Bible calls Job perfect and upright, one that eschewed evil and feared God, does that mean he was without sin? No. What was Job's sin and the sin that God was dealing with? Self-righteousness. You know, if Job had lived in our day, he would be the one that came to church every service, every prayer meeting, every Saturday morning, sowing visitation, men's prayer meeting, tithe, gave, offerings, gave to faith promise, always dressed right, helped in discipleship and other ministries of the church. Dressed right, talked right, walked right, reared his children right. What was his sin? The sin of many 
independent Baptist, the sin of self-righteousness. You say, how do you know that? God says it in this book, Job 32.1. So these three men ceased to answer Job because, what's the Bible say? He was righteous in his own eyes. Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu. Now, Elihu is the fourth man that we see here. He's the man of God, the one that God sent, the one that doesn't face any rebuke for the way he handled the situation. But Elihu comes, and against Job was his wrath kindled because, what's the Bible say? He, Job, justified himself rather than God. Now let me ask you this. Was God dealing in Job's life? Was there a sin here? Was there a problem here? Absolutely. Whose job was it to fix this? God's job. God used the man of God. So when you're in this situation, it doesn't matter what the issue is or what the problem is. When you see someone suffering a tragedy, whether or not it's a consequence of their own action, that is not a time to walk in with a big stick called the Word of God and beat them over the head and beat them in line and try to forcibly correct what God is doing in their life. How many of you believe in the Holy Spirit? Now, why in the world would we try to accomplish something that the Holy Spirit can't accomplish? Let the Holy Spirit do His work. Let God do His work. You take a step back and say, why would I try to do something that Almighty God is already doing? Yes, Job needed work. Yes, Job needed to address this sin. Yes, God was addressing it. And here's the amazing thing. If you look in this book, despite all that Job was, there was no personal communication between God and Job. Matter of fact, it wasn't until chapter 35, 36 that God even speaks. Chapter 1, God doesn't speak. Chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 10, chapter 15, chapter 22, 28, 30. God has yet to speak. So many Christians go day after day and week after week self-righteously looking the part and playing the part, but no personal relationship with God. Maybe God's dealing with you and your self-righteousness. And God was trying to work on Job. I like what Brother Fuller says. Why was God so silent? A teacher never talks. When giving a test. And Job was taking a test. And the teacher was silent. For 35 long chapters. And then he speaks. Question after question after question. Over 100 questions he asked Job. Now go with me back to chapter 42 and we're done. Put your finger here in 42. And look what it says in chapter 16. Verse 21. How can I be the right kind of comforter? Pastor, I want to help. I want to comfort people. Look what Job says in verse 21. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God. As a man pleadeth for his neighbor. What was Job looking for? Someone to intercede on his behalf. You know how to be a good comforter. Just be there. Be quiet. 
bring a gift, offer a hug, give a word of encouragement. But the best thing you can do is simply pray. Not preach, but pray. What was Job's desire? Oh, that someone would intercede for me and pray on my behalf. Now, let me ask you this. Were they praying for Job or preaching at Job? Yeah, preaching at him. And God rebukes them individually and says, you have sinned and need to offer a sacrifice for your sin. Now, let me ask you this. Who's the right kind of comforter in this situation? Verse 10. The Lord turned the captivity of Job. What's it say? When he prayed for his friends. You know what God wants you to do? You know how you can be a good comforter? Pray for people. The best thing you can do when someone is hurting, when someone is suffering, is simply go up, bring them a gift, be there in their moment of tragedy, and then say, can I pray for you? You say, I don't know what to say. Pray a song. Pray God. Would you bless them? Would you heal them? Would you help them? Doesn't take much. A little bit of sincerity. I promise you this. Whoever you're trying to comfort is going to be much more blessed by your prayer than by your preaching. Your wife already told me you're a lousy preacher. Your kids already told me you're a lousy preacher. Your solution, the way to help is to simply pray. And God said, Job, I want you to set the example. Those men that went and preached to you messed up when they opened their mouths. He said, I want you to set an example. You comfort them because I'm about ready to bring tragedy over their houses. Why don't you pray for them? How many of you have ever been in a place where you were suffering and someone came? Not much wisdom, without much experience, without much Bible knowledge. But they were the one that comforted because all they did was grab you by the hand and they prayed. And it brought comfort. Now church, here's what I'd like to see at Capital City Baptist Church. In this moment in our nation's history, folks, the closer we get to the rapture, and the second coming, we live and prepare for the end times. We need to know how to comfort. We deal with those that are hurting. As we deal with our own friends and family and church members, our own church body, we need to know how to comfort. We certainly hope that you've enjoyed this message today, but more importantly, we hope that the Lord has challenged you in some way to grow in your Christian life. For more information about our church, including directions and times of services, please visit our website at www.capitalcitybaptist.org.